0: Amen. All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 4 is where we'll be. If you don't, there should be a hardback black one in front of you, uh, under a seat somewhere. Acts chapter 4, in the middle of our Acts series. Good to see you guys um, here this morning. Excited to be back with you. Um, I went to a a, a church last Sunday that had a video service. And so it had the video of the preacher. It was different. It was interesting. It was very interesting. Um, All that to say... It's a good time, but I'm glad to be back, guys. There's no place like home can't be said better than that. And it's my favorite time of the year. Um, it's March Madness, OK? Uh, it's a college basketball tournament. If you don't know what March Madness is, I have questions for you, OK? We need to sit down and talk. I need to find out what's happened to you and in your life. Um, so right now, we have the college basketball tournament going on. And it seems like every year it builds a little bit of steam and gets more popular, and more people are talking about it, and more people are excited about it. Um, I actually read that they estimate this year that $175 million will be lost in productivity, like lost time at workplaces, per hour of the March Madness Tournament. $175 million, which is a lot. Um, if you were wondering, um, because people are just, I mean, we get excited about it there's probably lots of reasons for it. I remember the first year I really got into it, I was, it was 1999, which seems at times like it was just yesterday. Um, 1999, if you think about it, I mean, that's like a long time ago, over a decade. Um, that's like half of my life. So 1999, uh, I was in, in middle school, I think, at the very beginning of middle school. And my grandfather at his um, company he, he ran, uh, they did a, a bracket pool. And so you would enter in the bracket, enter in ten bucks or something, and you'd all pull it together. If you won with the points, you got all the money. Uh, so we entered in. Someone paid for me. I had money back then. I know I was gambling back then, right? This is for I was a pastor and I was holy. And I didn't do such pagan things. <laughs> Joking a little bit. Um <laughs> So I entered into it and it was my first year ever doing anything like that and I was a big basketball fan and I'd watch college basketball um, but it just so happened that I got really lucky that year and I mean I was hitting everything at each round I was doing really good and it was getting and it was like is, is Mike going to win this Is the little middle schooler who just kind of let in to have fun going to win the, the bracket and it was the last game I remember it was Duke versus UConn I don't know if you remember this 1999 um, and I got permission to stay up late on the Monday night to watch the game I remember I fell asleep just a bit in the second half but I woke up right in time to see my team win and it just exploded um, I won, I think, it was like $300, something like that, which at the time was a lot of money to me. Um, uh-huh. Funny, it's still a lot of money to me. Uh <laughs> it's still, it's still probably exploding excitement for $300. Um, but since then, man, every year, I haven't, I haven't really won. I haven't done that well since 1999. But every year, I mean, it's just captured my imagination. It's done it really, I think, for our society at large. It's an interesting time um, to just watch people. I mean, sports, I think, is a great... Arena uh, to see people worship and get excited about something. Um, and, and again, with the 175 million, people invest in March Madness, whether it's their time, um, whether it's actual money, whether it's just their emotions. I mean people get upset, people uh, get excited. Um, we just get excited about it. and there's this buzz about March that just makes it kind of a good time to be alive and kind of a good time to be a sports fan and just kind of a fun time to be around. Now we're in Acts chapter four. And what we've got so far in the book of Acts, I think, is a similar type of excitement. Church, for us, um, and myself included, I mean, it gets kind of every day and it gets mundane and you just do it and you do it and you do it. And there's no real end to it and there's nothing really new under the sun and if you like this, you can get that. If you want that, you can get that. And it's just all kind of the same and it's every day and there's nothing special happening. We come. I'm not resurrecting people, right? I mean, if I was doing stuff like that, I think y'all would get pumped up, right? we draw a larger crowd. We were healing people. I was multiplying bread, things like that. But it just gets kind of every day to us. But so far in Acts, it's not every day. I mean, if we can agree on that. It's this kind of um, new exciting thing. Everyone in Jerusalem is kind of talking about it. The buzz is in the city, right? The same way you got this, these underdogs. So um, this weekend, right? Two number 15 seeds. One beat number two seeds, and everyone's kind of like, "Oh my gosh, that's kind of crazy!" That has never happened before. Well, this is what's happening in Jerusalem. Everyone's kind of excited. Everyone's got this buzz to it. Um, it's kind of buzzing around in the city. Everyone's um, interested in what's happening. And so, to recap, on you know, where we've been when we jump into Acts chapter four, you had the ascension. So Jesus ascends into heaven. He gives his spirit to his followers. So his spirit, the power and presence of God, the third person, the Trinity, comes into his followers. They start doing weird things, speaking in tongues. These miracles are happening. The church is growing. People are coming to accept Jesus as Lord and to give Him ultimate allegiance and to obey Him, get baptized, become part of the church community, those type of things. Um, you remember in chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, Peter and John are on their way up to the temple and they heal a man, right? They don't just preach a good sermon. They don't just come up with like a cute little phrase. I mean, those are the things I try to do, right? He walks up, he heals a guy who's lame. He gets a, a big sermon. He's, he's finishing up the sermon in the end of chapter three after he's healed this guy who's been lame his entire life. Then we pick it up in Acts chapter four. As we read, we're going to find out not everyone is happy about what's happening um, with this early church community. So everyone's paying attention. But not everyone is paying attention um, with a smile on their face. So look at Acts chapter 4 verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. So they're preaching. The Sadducees, kind of the ruling elite of the temple of Jerusalem, we'll talk about that. Come, and they are annoyed. All right, they just uh, they can't stand what these Christians are doing. They come and they arrest them, um, and then they're going to hold off on the trial. And notice though, the church continues to grow. Five thousand people come to faith. We'll see this throughout the book of Acts. When the Christians are persecuted, it doesn't stop their growth. And if anything, it it seems to advance it. The church grows as they're persecuted. Early Christianity, including Christianity today, um, if you're not aware, there's still persecution happening um, across the globe. In fact, some would argue... Um, I heard it argued recently that there's more persecution happening right now against Christianity than ever in history if you go by numbers statistically. So it's happening, um, very very real. Um, it's, it's happening right now. Um, but it, it kind of grows. I mean, it's the most frustrating thing in the world, right? I mean, you want to stop a movement, so you kill them, but then you kill them, and it just gets more momentum. and gets more um, power behind it. And so they arrest them. Look in, in verse 5 here. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well." This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which must we be saved. So they ask... How is all of this happening? Um, I think what's in view here is the preaching and the healing. I mean, they, they were annoyed at the preaching. They bring them and they arrest them and go, by what authority are you doing this? We talked about the name a couple of weeks ago, right? The, the idea of a name in the ancient world carried this power and authority. It got things done or accomplished. Much like you and I drop names today. Uh, I have to know this person or this person. And things get tend to get done based on their authority, based on their power. By what power are you doing these type of things? Are you healing people? Are you preaching and getting people all followed up, fired up about the resurrection? And they say, by Jesus. It's because of what he has done. It's because of his death. It's because of his resurrection. It's because of the Spirit filling us up even now as I speak that these things are happening in front of you. And then he says, and we'll come back to this, of real famous verse, there's salvation in no one else. This is the name given to all men to be saved, to be rescued, to be redeemed. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's, it's hard to argue with a guy who's been healed, right? So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak. We cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here again, Luke is, is very concerned with this miracle. I mean, he's a doctor. He's seeing all this happening. He's going, look, this is how it happened. Remember, he used that the kind of technical doctoral... Um, kind of terms for his ankle and his feet Since he was over 40 years old, he was lame but now he can, he can stand and the disciples again are saying this was a sign, this is a pointer to what has happened in Jesus and what is continuing to happen that salvation is here the kingdom of God has been set up rescue and redemption is coming and they get them together and they say look we can't I mean we can't hide the fact that this guy was healed but we want you to be quiet to just stop talking about Jesus and Peter and John go well I'm sorry but we're not that's not how it's going to play out that's, that's not something we're prepared to do and I think interestingly enough here are able to do. We can't but help to speak about his name speak about the power and the work that he is doing in the world among us now if we head back to verse number 12 here i think this is kind of the center of our passage this morning peter is talking he's explaining um, by what power they did this miracle in their preaching and he says there's salvation in no one else there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved you have this exclusive claim to salvation That there is no salvation found anywhere else. You can look high, you can look low, you can look within yourself, you can look outside of yourself, you can look at other people, you can look at a government. No matter where you look, you're not going to find rescue or redemption anywhere except for Jesus. And the modern world, or, or the post-modern world, kind of the society we've been in for the last 100, maybe 200 years, has looked at claims like this, exclusive claims, the Christians make, saying, we alone have salvation, we alone know the way to God, and they have said, baloney. I mean, that's arrogant. That's arrogant and close-minded, and the fact that you would say such things proves how little you know about the way the world works. So I want us, I mean, Jesus says something similar in John 14. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I want us to think about this, um, the claim that it's arrogant. Why is Peter saying this? Why is he saying there's salvation in no one else? And what is salvation? What is he talking about here? I think we limit salvation and how we view it sometimes and don't let the full scope of it hit us in the chest. Um, there have been some um, this illustration is is kind of common um, to talk about pluralism we live in a pluralistic society which means a lot of people and you hear this all the time when you turn on um, the afternoon like talk shows and you'll hear this say things like there's lots of ways to God there are lots of ways to get to God there are lots of ways to know about God there are lots of ways to experience God um we might have our way right, but there might be another way that works just as well. And the illustration that's sometimes used is of an elephant. I don't know if you've heard this, the elephant and the blind men, or the elephant and the, the men who are blindfolded. And so here's the idea. You've got like five men, and they're blindfolded or they're blind, and there's this big elephant in front of them. And they're all told to go touch it, to feel it, to experience it, and then explain what it was like, tell us what it was like. And so one goes up, uh, and he has the, the tail. Okay, and so he's touching the tail and feeling it, and he draws on his notes. It's kind of hairy. It's long and kind of stringy, kind of muscular, and it's just a long snake-like figure. Another one goes up, and he has like a hind leg, and so he's feeling it. He can feel it. he can go around it, right? He can touch it. He goes, it's like this leathery tree. I mean, it's, I mean, you can wrap your arms around it very easily. Another one goes up, and he has the side, right? And so he's touching the side, experiencing what's in front of him, and he comes back and on his notes. It's a wall. The elephant, the elephant's a wall, I mean, it's just this big kind of structure right in front of you, and they all compare their notes, and what, they, none of them got the same conclusions, right, they all have these different ideas, and, and people go, well, if you stand back, what's happening is they're all describing, what, the same elephant, from dif- different standpoints, different views, different experiences, and so some would say, and this is again, the general air that we breathe in our society, this is what God's like, God's like the elephant, And so Christians maybe experience a part of him, and and Buddhists experience a part, and Muslims experience a part, and Jewish people experience a part. And and we're all doing our best as blind, kind of um, not very smart people to describe the same God. And we're all going towards him. We're all describing the same God. And it would be arrogant of one blind guy to say, guess what? I know exactly what the elephant is like. And this is kind of the the air you would breathe if you would find the same like this very offensive very arrogant um, which again is kind of the culture that we're in Um, it's been pointed out I mean if we want to stick with the example the flaws with this kind of claim um, would be that the only way you would know that that claim by a blind guy was arrogant is if what? If you could see the whole elephant right? I mean you would have to not be blind to be able to say that that was it's arrogant to say that's a whole elephant which is the big problem with this pluralistic uh, offense um getting upset about it because you have to know universal truth to be able to say that's not universal truth, right? It's a self-defeating kind of thing. You have to be able to see the whole picture to say that's not the whole picture. And we've talked at length that the reason for Christian faith, the reason the apostles are saying and doing these things is not because they've had some kind of weird experience. It's not because they've come to some sort of vague theory based on formulas. It's because of something that happened. It's because of something that happened in the public arena, in front of them. Something, prophecies being fulfilled, the resurrection. There's a history Christianity. There's a a happiness. There's a public nature to it. Faith is a response to the work of God in front of everybody. And, And what Peter's saying here simply is this we have observed. This is the truth, right? And so we want to say this. As Christians, we affirm there's only one way to God, there's only one revelation of God, and it's Jesus. There is no salvation in any other names, any other powers, any other authorities. And the reason that is. It's because that's the truth. That's how it's happened. That's how it's played out in history. It's not trying to be arrogant or trying to be hateful toward other people. It's trying to use language right. It's trying to be true and speak truthfully about the way that the world works. And we'll see. I mean, I mean, it's really a loving claim too. Um, I think sometimes we we miss the the other side of the statement. Um, when we get into arguments and things like that, we miss the implicit claim here, which is what Peter's saying. There is salvation in Jesus. What Jesus has done and is doing is bringing salvation to the world, is a work of salvation, is continuing the work of salvation. To say there is no salvation outside of Jesus is to say what? Inside of Jesus there is salvation. And now we commonly again think of salvation as like going to heaven after we die and kind of our souls and we worship for eternity playing on harps and things like that. Um, and some have rightly commented that it doesn't sound a whole lot like just your idea of a great time, right? And for eternity, and it's never going to end, and what if you get bored, and what are you going to do, and things like that. Um, but in the scriptures, salvation is a much fuller, much bigger thing. Um, it's, it involves everything that's gone wrong with the world, physically, socially, spiritually. Um, so you might even like lay out three aspects of salvation. You have the spiritual, um, which is your separation from God, you have physical, which is the, the fact that our bodies, the physical matter in us is breaking down. Death has entered into them. And you have the social. You have estrangement from each other. You have relational dysfunction. You have relational death. And all of it, a holistic picture, every tiny molecule that's wrong with creation is being fixed, remade, renewed in salvation. We saw this, right, with the lame guy. I mean, think about the lame guy. He wasn't just physically healed. Luke goes out of his way to kind of make sure we get this point. Remember, he's outside the temple begging for money. Because according to Mosaic law, he's ritually unclean. can't go inside the temple. So he's spiritually separated from God. He's never been able to properly worship God. He's never been able to go inside to the temple and meet with the Lord. He's obviously physically have, has things not working right for him, as God had created it and intended it. And then socially, he's outcast by virtue of not being able to go to the temple, not being able to have a job, um, have a family, things like that. And what Peter does with this sign of new life, this sign of the salvation of Jesus, is he breaks down all three of these. And then they're, they're asking about it. He says, this is what's happening. Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, through the Spirit at work, has brought salvation, is bringing currently salvation And will ultimately, finally, one day bring salvation. If you remember in in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, The restoration of all things when Jesus comes back. Everything will be made new and restored upon Jesus' return. Now, I think there are two implications um, for this idea that, that Jesus brought salvation and that, in fact, Um, In Jesus, there's salvation nowhere else um, outside of him. Um, The first implication is that he demands our total allegiance. Um, That when we say yes to Jesus or yes to finding salvation in Jesus, we also say no to other things. And we say no to finding salvation and rescue and redemption and satisfaction and other things. He demands our total allegiance. The second implication, I think, um, is that it summons us, it compels us, it in a sense, forces us. To witness and to share and to tell others about the great thing um, that Jesus has done and is doing among us. So we'll start with the first, this idea of total allegiance. Um, You have this power clash at the beginning of the story, okay? So you have the early church, and then you have um, the Sadducees, the ruling elite. Um, And they they don't get along. The Sadducees, it says, are greatly annoyed, verse 2, because they were teaching the people... And they're so annoyed that they arrest them, that there's this conflict between them. It doesn't end in actual physical persecution at this point. It will soon. There's a Jewish tradition of you arrest them, you warn them, you let them go, and then if they keep disobeying, (laughs) then you bring them in, and then it gets a little more physical, a little more um, punitive. Um, But they they have this kind of struggle, this kind of clash. And I think to understand why um, Christians, Christianity, believing Jesus, is kind of an offensive thing. I mean, it does create conflict. Now, you got to be careful, because I think sometimes we imagine conflict in a weird way. Like, like I don't want you to be the annoying Christian person. Does that make sense? Um, like, <laughs> you who, without needing to offend people, you know what I mean? Like, you can't have a conversation with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus because you guilt them into everything and, and you just can't have that relationship. Um, but I think you should offend people right for the right reasons. You should annoy people for the right reasons. Um, and there's, there's always kind of been this element. It was, with that, it was like that with Jesus. I mean, Jesus gets crucified. I think however you think of Jesus, you've got to have an aspect there where people hate him enough to kill him. I mean, a lot of the Jesus that we talk about is not a Jesus that we get killed. I mean, he might be annoying, you might ignore him, but no one kills him unless he is demanding radical things and claiming total allegiance and threatening the power structures, which is what these people thought was happening. Um, We have to ask ourselves in verse 2 here, what does it mean that they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead? They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is a Jewish belief that at the end of time, this is the phrase, resurrection from the dead, all of God's people would be resurrected from the dead. Physically, materially, bodily resurrected. Again, we typically think in kind of platonic or Greek thoughts where we go to heaven um, with our souls and leave our bodies in the world behind. The Jewish people were much more physical. Um, they were much more disworldly. Christians picked this up. This is the thought throughout the New Testament that the hope for you and I, for ultimate salvation, is to be resurrected. Now, what no one ever thought would happen is that one person would be resurrected by himself in the middle of time. And it seems that this is what the Christians are preaching, that the resurrection has started. This is why they call it the last days. This is why the Christians believe they're in the end times. Because resurrection was an end time thing. At the end of time, the resurrection would happen. They thought it had started with Jesus, which is why they believe there's new creation, which is why new life is flowing to people like this lame man. Because it's started. It's among us. A new day is dawning. A light is starting to shine. The light of salvation. The light of God restoring all things. The light of God coming to creation and fixing all that had gone wrong. And this upsets the Sadducees because resurrection is a dangerous belief. Resurrection is a revolutionary belief. It's a belief of revolutionaries. It's a belief that causes people to be okay with suffering. It's a belief that causes people to be okay with stirring up trouble for the powers to be. For saying there's one much more in control than you, and we will obey him and not you. So the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Um, they did not believe in the afterlife at all, actually. And, and this is kind of the thought of the ruling elite here in Jerusalem. Um, they didn't do so because there was no need for them to be resurrected. They were wealthy and powerful at this time. Um, they had kind of gone into bed with Rome, um, with the empire. And so they had the power. They had the wealth. They were doing okay for themselves. They didn't need to think about maybe a reward coming in the future. Um, so they didn't want... People believing in the resurrection, much less thinking it was happening among them, um, and didn't want people kind of stirring up trouble among them. Um, here's the analogy I would give you: Resurrection is a dangerous belief um, because it's dangerous if I'm trying to control you, if you think there's an authority higher than me, if you think no matter what I do to you, it's not the end of the game. Someone will judge me and vindicate you, even if I hurt you right now. Um, the best way I can do this is with kids, like high schoolers, um, middle schoolers. Um, I mean, if you've ever tried to discipline a kid or to, to threaten a kid or like to, to kind of control a kid, who knows that you don't actually have the ultimate authority? <laughs> I mean, you know, you just feel it. You have no, just no shot at all. Um, so, like, maybe a babysitter who knows their, their parent will have their side or their mom or dad want to enforce like a discipline type thing. Um, you're like, go to your room. And that, nope. Well, <laughs> why not? My mommy, my daddy. I mean, you know you've lost the game at that point. That's kind of the idea behind resurrection. This is the belief that you can do whatever you want to me, but it's not the end of the road. You will be judged, and I will be vindicated. I will be alive, and you will not be. And so I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to be persecuted, those type of things. You see this clearly with the Maccabean revolt. Like in Second Maccabees 7, um, you have seven sons who are um, tortured before they're, they're killed, and they're taunting their torturer. He's cutting off limbs, and they're going, keep doing it, we'll get it back in the resurrection. I mean, that's got to be so frustrating if you're trying to control people. I mean, if you're a tyrant, that's the, the ultimate thing you have over someone. I'll kill you and I'll hurt you. And they're like, you can do whatever you want. I mean, we'll, we'll be alive again. We'll get our bodies back again. And so they're preaching the resurrection of the dead. Um, and, and therefore, the, the claim, again, that Jesus demands all of our allegiance, um, that the new age has dawned and we don't have to be okay with the status quo anymore. We don't have to go along with injustice. We don't have to go along with things that don't belong in creation. There's a new king. There's a new person in charge. And he now has ultimate authority. There's this clash of power. This is why they bring them together and say, by what name, with what power are you doing these things? Verse 7. It's a power clash. And they respond again through the authority and work of Jesus. Through the salvation that He is offering. When Peter says salvation is found in no one else, it's a political statement. I mean, you've got to catch that, right? If you allow salvation to be bigger than just an individualistic, you and God and you go into heaven when you die, there's a lot of political implications to salvation and to believing and following in Jesus. I mean, I think that would be an, an apt reminder for us as the presidential debate gets even more and more kicked into gear, Right? I mean, regardless of what happens in the political arena in front of us, um, salvation is not going to be found there. right? It'll be found through Jesus and only through Jesus. So salvation is about your sins. And it's about your guilt before a holy God. And it's about your sins being washed away. But salvation's also about poverty being ended. And salvation's about Abuse and injustice being done with. I don't know if you've, and social media's kind of blown up with this Joseph Kony in Uganda, uh, this warlord in Uganda who's taken child, children soldiers um, uh, and just kind of in a video going around on the internet. I mean, salvation's about a lot, right? But it is about that. It's about those kind of things not happening anymore. It's about a victory, a rescue. It's about creation being redeemed. And to say salvation is found in Jesus, to say we will follow Him. We will hope in Him. We will obey Him over and above anybody else. Even if it means being persecuted. Because one day we'll be raised again. One day we will be vindicated when evil is judged. And so the Christians are saying, hey, salvation's here. It's being found in Jesus nowhere else. This is why we're doing it. This is what you've seen with the Spirit. This is what you've seen with people putting their faith in Jesus being baptized. This is what you've seen with the lame man being healed. This is what you're seeing right now with uneducated men standing up to you. You're seeing the work and power of Jesus in front of you. And then here's the second implication. They are urged. They're compelled. They're summoned to share and to bear witness about what's happened. Um, I love this. They They get them down and they say... Don't speak any more about this. And look at 19, what Peter and John say. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is: We will continue to speak about it. In fact, in a sense, maybe we have to. I mean, we're compelled to speak about it. Um, I think of Luther's quote um, before the, the council um, of the papacy. Um, Luther, the reformer, gets brought before um, leaders of the church, the Catholic church, and there's this trial, and he stands at the end after being told to recant or face punishment. Um, He has this real famous quote, he says, I cannot and will not recant to go against conscience, neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Here's what they're saying. You, you, you can do your words to us, but we have to speak about what we've seen. And I don't want us to miss kind of the joy here, kind of the exuberant celebration that they have here. You, you might miss it in kind of the argumentative nature. There's no salvation outside of Jesus. But you might miss the joy that, that undergirds this kind of statement. We have found salvation. We've found rescue. We've found redemption. There's new life happening God is redeeming now among us. Something new is happening. Something powerful is happening. Salvation is here. And we can't help but talk about it. Even if we tried not to, we wouldn't be able to. The words would force themselves out of us. This is how hearts operate. This is how human beings work, right? If you worship something, just in the sense that you enjoy it, that you invest in it, that you put value in it, you talk about it. I mean, you, you talk about the things that you enjoy. I mean, we could, March Madness, right? You, you see a game that you really like. What's the first thing you do? You go talk to a buddy about it. You saw a movie you like, TV show, a relationship that you're in. I mean, you, you talk about what you enjoy, what you worship. Worship leads to praise. C.S. Lewis um did some work on, on the thought that actually your worship or your enjoyment of something is not complete until you talk about it. That the act of praising, the act of talking about something, actually furthers your enjoyment of that thing. And so here's how you can know this. Have you ever had something amazing happen to you or seen something amazing amazing, and you weren't able to tell anybody right away and it bothered you? Like it kind of itched your soul. You're like, oh, I have to tell someone about it, Right. Because it's not complete. You haven't fully enjoyed it until you've shared it with somebody else how great it is. And this is what the Christians are doing. This is what is happening to Peter and John. They have this itch on the inside of their soul. They have this fire burning inside of their heart that cannot be put out. And that compels them to share with the people around them. That compels them to, to talk about the life that they've found in Jesus and that's continuing to be found in Jesus in His life. I think this is something for you and I to reflect on, for us to think about. Again, like I said, I think sometimes church gets mundane to us. Jesus gets kind of every day to us. We lose the celebration of what's happening. We lose the excitement of what's really able to be found. Um, and, and, I mean, this just happens to all of us. We get distracted or, or um, we just get busy or bad things come in on us, um, sickness and, and relationship troubles and things like that, and we lose sight and we get our heads kind of bogged down. And then before we know it, I mean, we, we haven't been reading our Bibles, we haven't been praying, we, we haven't had the joy of the Spirit um, inside for, for a very long time. And when all that happens, I mean, you can sure bet that we're not talking to other people about Jesus, about the Spirit, about what He's been doing. I mean, it's really easy at this time of the year to, to kind of throw the guilt trip on, on sports people. Um, and, and to look at, I mean, you can do the Super Bowl, March Madness, um, NBA Finals. How excited people get um, for sports—that in a way that I mean, their excitement for God or for Jesus would not even rival that. I mean, the amount of energy and emotion that they invest in that would not even rival that. But then I think, I think. You're missing out. I mean, if it's just a guilt trip, you're missing it a little bit because it's the joy here that's undergirding this. It's the excitement that's undergirding it. You aren't going to witness or share to other people if you're if you're doing it begrudgingly, right? I mean, if you're forced to. It's the excitement. It's the itch in your soul. It's the actual enjoyment of what Jesus has done and is doing that leads you to do this kind of thing. We've talked a lot here about our role as missional agents, as people who go Wherever we are, workplaces, our schools, our families, and share the good news and see life being had through jesus here 's the question I have for us this morning is if we we're going to do a checkup or like a diagnostic on our our soul have we do we have that excitement? Have we lost that excitement do we i mean notice Peter. He, he says we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard, what we've experienced. He doesn't say we can't stop talking about this, an idea that we've come to, to think about, or we can't stop talking about something that happened to us 10 years ago. And I think that's what gets us sometimes, speaking just personally maybe. I mean, You, you, you don't get excited, real excited, that, and excited enough to share with other people and see life transformation happen with ideas. If it's just an idea to you, if it's not real, if it's not happening to you, Or if it's something that happened five years ago. If you have this, I mean, Christianity, it was not meant to be lived in the glory days. In nostalgia, where you look back and go, I was really close to God back then. And he was doing really cool things back then. But again, life has this way of happening and kind of squeezing the excitement, the urgency out of us. And then we wake up, and we have no influence in the world around us we haven't been faithful in our relationship with the Lord or with other people and we look at the early church in Acts and go this is so foreign to us what were they so excited about they were excited because a lame man just got up and walked I mean, they were excited because people were being baptized because things were changing around them because they experienced the spirit at the very depths of their being they experienced being loved by the perfect God so the question this morning I would ask is is, is, is this real to us? I mean, is this something that we are seeing and hearing? Is this real to us? Do we see this salvation happening in Jesus? And is it just an idea to us? Is it just a theory? Is this something we'd like to sign on to or we'd like to see happen? Or is it something that's real to us? something that we feel in our bones? Is it something that puts an itch in our soul? Is it something that we enjoy and are so excited about that it's not even complete unless we go out this week and tell everyone about it? Are we, are we witnessing? Are we on mission like the early church was? I mean, we're in the season of, of March Madness, and I, I love March Madness, and I get excited about it, and I get excited about it, um, too. Um, but I think it's a, just a good time as well, um, particularly as we head towards Easter, to, to sit back and think, where is our heart? Where is our soul? I mean, have we lost the sense of urgency, the sense of, of wonder, the sense of amazement, the sense of grandeur? So here's what we'll do Um we will. I'll invite you to do three things with me. Um, the first is to come take communion in just a moment as we celebrate um, His sacrifice for us, um, reminding ourselves of the salvation that He's accomplished. I'll invite you then to worship with me, um, to respond in praise, um, to with energy and enthusiasm, sing out how good He is. Um, and then I'll invite you to be sent off into the world um, to this week go and and find him to go and experience him and then to share that with other people. So pray for us and we'll do that. Father, we, we love you and we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for the example, the model, and the work of the early church that benefits us, Father. Um, we ask that you would equip us through your spirit the same way that you equipped Peter and John. Um, that we would experience, see and hear, touch and feel your salvation, that it would be real in us. I pray that you would put an itch in our souls, Father. I pray that you would um, put a flame in our bones. Um, I pray that, that nothing would be able to distract us from your salvation, not death, not hardship, not sickness, not relational struggle, not financial issues not busyness, not wealth or success, that we would see you and love you and cherish you and put you above all else, and that would by nature overflow out of our lives um, onto the people around us. We love you, Father, and we ask you to be with us. And in your son's we pray. Amen. Amen.